welcome to Your On Mute, the podcast where we discuss how the intersection of advertising, technology, and the internet is shaping the world around us and impacting our daily lives. It's very, very excited to have episode three. We got a, a great guest uh, this this episode, which is awesome. So um, yeah, third episode, second episode with an interview with a guest. And this one we talked about, really dove into the legislative side of privacy um, and the ethical side of data use. And, and uh, our guest, Becky Burr, friend of both of ours, um, I, th- I thought she did a great job providing a lot of common sense um, details about how the internet and the government work together. I agree. And I think that it couldn't be more relevant than right now, given all the the interesting you know privacy uh challenges that are in the news today which you know have nothing to do with advertising thank god let's talk about that for a second so this came we recorded the session before the um the the ruling on the fbi being able to essentially get access to all of your data without a warrant right that came out like a week after we talked to becky right Um, and now that's gone back to the house so i guess the the house is going to vote on that now Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because the FBI has actually had that right for a while as part of the, the, the Patriot Act um, and, and the privacy uh, changes that were made uh, to prevent terrorism after 9-11. And so this was a change to the FISA process that was proposed, um, you know, by privacy hawks to try to require um, the FBI to require to, to get a warrant before they. Um, they get access to your search information because otherwise uh, they can, if they have probable cause um, or reasonable right. suspicion, they can, they can get access to your, your search data. I think it, it's going to be pretty interesting to see how this works out. Cause it's not into the house. Apparently there's one person in the house that needs to make a decision about letting the house vote on this topic. Uh, it, it's going to be pretty interesting. Are you even following pretty closely, like as far as the Democratic versus Republican um, interest? I, I, I've been trying to, but it doesn't seem to be Democratic or Republican, and so this is a very, yeah. it's a very bipartisan. weird case. It, it, it it's bipartisan for and bipartisan against. Yeah. So so from a uh, a for standpoint, uh, for the prevention, the requirement of a warrant, um, there are a bunch of folks on the right who are upset about the use of FISA um, during the 2016 election yeah. uh, to right. sp- spy, quote unquote, spy on uh, sure. on, on uh, members of the Trump campaign. And so right. they're they're looking at that as a problem that they're trying to, to prevent and make it harder to do that. And then on the left, um, there's concern that this type of, uh, this type of, uh, wire this search wiretap again i'm doing air quotes that you can't see would be used for political purposes and that uh you know in an environment that we're in right now where it seems like grudges can be executed against people uh for uh opinions being pro or against certain things that 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 this without some sort of oversight that, that these powers will be abused but I mean, we've talked about this for now three episodes, and I'm just curious of what the FBI actually thinks that they're going to get access to. So, is it just search search history? Is it emails? Is it everything within their their data kind of library in the cloud? Like, what did you? I haven't really looked that far into it, but 
what type of data they're actually going to have access to and like how relevant is going to be to, to create any sort of, you know, any sort of negative uh, um, results from, from pulling that data out. So when I talk about this with my parents, they tend to say things like, well, I don't care. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm not worried about them looking at stuff. And, you know, for the most part, that's, that's the case. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of information that can be inferred from the, the, the exhaust of your usage of the internet, which when we talked about in the past, we said, well, no one's really interested in your data, right? Everyone's interested in your data in aggregate. And for advertising, that's true. You know, but if someone wants to find out something about you and they're specifically looking for you, then they can, right? And so um, if they want to look at your search results and find out that, you know, you, you know, like to dress up like a squirrel or whatever it is, like it's not, you're a furry. Yeah. There's a lot of data there. And if you're looking specifically for data about a person, um, you'll find it, you'll find stuff. And with that, let's jump into our third episode of You're On Mute, where we interview Becky Burr. I'm Becky Burr. I'm a partner at uh, Harris, Wilshire & Granis in Washington, D.C. Um, I've spent a lot of time working on privacy uh, uh, in the 90s at the Federal Trade Commission and uh, the National Telecommunications and Information Industry and in private practice and um, uh, in-house uh, working with um, uh, a lot of uh, advertisers and ad tech, uh, and it's um, what I do. You have a very, very robust past working and protecting consumers. There's a lot of people out there who don't know what's happening behind the scenes. Um, they don't really understand what rights they have. They don't really understand new legislation that it's, that's being passed. Um, and we just kind of want to talk about you know some of the things that have happened that are going to happen. Uh, and really just kind of get your opinions around, you know, the intersection of, of technology and privacy uh, and the Internet and kind of see how that um, how that unfolds. Great. Should be fun. How quickly after the Internet was really widely adopted many years ago, um, was there a federal and or state privacy policy implemented to kind of help control or at least be, be more of a watchdog over you know, what's happening on the Internet? So the internet existed for quite a long time before it was a sort of consumer vehicle. Um, and there were a couple of things, uh, you know, when people always say, joke about uh, Al Gore being the father of the internet. I heard he invented it. Yeah, but, well, um, in 1992, he was responsible for getting an amendment passed to a bill that allowed commercialization of the internet, which had largely been first a government project and, and then a creature of universities and research facilities. So there wasn't really commercial activity um, on the internet um, until after that. And it really didn't take off until Mosaic came around. So we're talking more before there, you really saw the beginnings of a consumer internet. Um, the Federal Trade Commission actually had its first workshops on online privacy in 1995. Um, and it was, uh, it was in the early days in the Clinton administration. Um, there was a lot of, there was a, a great deal of optimism that the internet was going to change the world. I mean, I used to joke about, you know, that people believed it was going to end world hunger. 
um, and, uh, you know, cure cancer. Um, uh, it was, but there was also a lot of awareness that increasingly, um, a, you know, a more and more significant part of the world's economy was flowing over the internet. People were engaged there. Um, and uh, so the privacy issues, people started thinking about the privacy issues. What are they? What's going on? So the Federal Trade Commission had hearings or workshops, called a bunch of people in in 1995 and 1996 and and uh, started thinking about privacy and pushing, um, pri- pushing the notion that uh, consumer business to consumer sites should be telling people what their um, what their privacy policies and practices were. And that really came out of the way the Federal Trade Commission Act works, which is um, it's about deception. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you need to tell people the truth about what you're doing, consumers the truth about what you're doing, and you need to tell them all the important information that they need in order to make decisions um, and that's what that, you know, that when we think of consumer protection in the United States, that's how we think of it. So the FTC and then the Clinton administration more generally started really pushing um, uh, consumer uh, services on the Internet to start publishing privacy policies. Um, and it slowly took off from there. I mean, in 1998, eight or nine, um, uh, Congress passed the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, or COPPA, um, which is really still, other than the breach notification laws, well, actually even uh, including breach notification laws, it's really still the only internet-specific law um, at the federal level about privacy. So so what we have is like a bunch of privacy policy notices in terms of service and COPPA. COPPA is the only one that's not, you said that is a federally mandated or introduced act, right? Yeah. It's specific to the internet. It's about the collection of information from children online. And, you know, just, I hate to uh, be a downer about this, but um, the truth is it, it uh, we all thought that it was going to be a great law and everybody was for children's privacy and didn't think, you know, people should be collecting data from kids online, but it has turned out not to be, um, I think, a lot of people would say uh, that it has not achieved its goal um, and that it has made uh, valuable services for children online uh, more rather than uh, less difficult to come by. It's also, I mean, it makes sense that the first and only, it seems like, federal law or act that has been passed was, you know, to protect children. That makes sense. I think everyone can kind of get on on board with that. But it's also interesting to see that that's the only federal law that that is, has been applied to the internet and to consumer privacy since what you said, not, that was 1998 or 1999, right? So 12 yeah, well, years. Well, I think that yeah. there are a couple of things to think about. I mean, one, the internet is, you know, in some ways a particular technology and it's changing all of the time. And um, it's very hard to pass laws that are tied to technology that is changing all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So the, the internet was one kind of place in 1998. It's a really different kind of place 
um, in 2020. Uh, that is why, you know, there are difficulties with it. So that's why you see um, Europe, uh, countries outside of the un United States, taking a more sort of principled-based, broadband, broad-scope, omnibus principled, here are the principles about privacy that apply, whether it's in the online environment or otherwise. So, so you, you mentioned Europe. I was going to ask you, is the jurisdictional part of this kind of challenging as well? Because the internet doesn't live in a country. It, it kind of lives everywhere. Um, do you think that has added to the challenge? I mean, obviously, Europe's passed a lot of laws around privacy, but I don't, I, I don't even know if it's able to quantify how successful those laws have been. Um, I would say that the European law, Europe has been, the European Union has been incredibly successful at exporting its approach to uh, data protection and personal privacy. There are, you know, uh, hundred and something, hundred and, I don't know, a very large percentage of uh, developed countries and developing countries have data protection laws, and most of them are modeled on the European the European Union approach to it, um, in part because uh, the United States didn't come up with a, an omnibus law um, in the late 90s and early 2000s when um, the, when people were beginning to think about online privacy, and so there was no competing model out there. Well, one of the interesting things about the European law is that it, it changed the definition of of data and, and personal information to include things like like cookies and IP addresses. Um, ha have other countries adopted similar definitions of personal information? Um, yes, although, you know, I think that that uh, it, that's not unique to Europe. In, in the U.S., the Federal Trade Commission has said for a long time um, that things like uh, cookies, uh, persistent identifiers, even including IP addresses in certain circumstances, can be um, personal information. And that is certainly uh, the approach that the California Consumer Privacy Act takes. So in part... Um, it's the change in technology that allowed these persistent identifiers to be more closely linked to identifiable individuals um, and the realization that at some level a percent persistent identifier gives you some form of identity that can be used uh, in other contexts. So you, you brought up CCPA and, and again, we this is one of these things where, you know, if you ask the people that surround me personally, like no one knows what, what that is, right? No one, no one's following, no one's really paying attention to legislation that's being passed, specifically one that's state by state when I live in Pennsylvania, right? And this is specifically supposed to be focused on, on California. So, and we haven't really dove into that. Steve and I have not in, in super detail. So, I mean, from your perspective, what are like the top bullet points you think people, the average consumer should know about that particular piece of legislation? CCPA is very much focused on uh, data exchange for purposes of, of marketing. Um, and it uh, allows California residents um, to say to companies, don't sell my personal information. And, and sell is, uh, is uh, defined quite broadly. 
So it gives California consumers control over the sale of their personal information. Um, it also gives California consumers um, the right to know um, in pretty, uh, in a lot of detail, what information a company has collected about them. Um, and it has, uh, gives them the right to ask for that data to be deleted. There are exceptions to the deletion requirements in all these cases. But what the consumer in Pennsylvania might be interested in knowing is that it is pretty hard um, to implement one uh, set of privacy practices for the uh, 40 million consumers in California um, and a different set of uh, privacy practices for consumers in Pennsylvania. So most companies um, are applying the California standard across the board. Um, so I, I, I'm, you know, being my tinfoil hat self on January 1st, as a California resident, I went and tried to, you know, exercise my rights under CCPA with a variety of different platforms. Um, and, uh, you know, the big ones that I know that this was written for, you know, primarily Google and Facebook, uh, neither of them would let me opt out of sale of my data because they said they don't sell it. That, it's been an interesting, I mean, I did that January 1. I'm still getting updates. It's May. Um, on on what you asked for? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, just think of it. You know how difficult it is. Um, because if somebody actually asks you, tell me everything you know about me, um, and that's all the different kind of identifiers you have, um, uh, just the kinds of changes in systems and, uh, you know, the, the, it, it causes you to look at things and, and reverse engineer things in a way that nobody was doing before. So it, it's, it's, it's caused quite a lot of work. It has not been... It has not been bad for privacy lawyers. So are there other states following suit that are that are providing similar, if not more stringent privacy policy legislation? So there are lots and lots of states that are working on legislation. And the state of Washington has come very close, um, but failed two years in a row to pass a privacy uh, legislation um, that is actually much closer to uh, the European um, approach to privacy, um, and in some ways a more um, uh, a sort of more comprehensive uh, approach to privacy. Mm -hmm. um, it, the legislature has not been able to pass it because um, there have been a, a dispute about the enforcement uh, provisions in that legislation, but they've come very close. New York State has some draft legislation, um, which turns on a very different concept, the notion that if you collect data from people, you are, from consumers, you're a fiduciary, you have fiduciary obligations to them with respect to that data. It's a very different Wow. One. Illinois has mm. passed a very strict that's scary, biometric. That, that's, that's really scary for advertisers, right? <laughs> Clash action lawsuits and all the above, right? Yeah, it's an odd, it is an odd concept. It's a concept that has been um, pushed by some uh, privacy advocates. Interestingly enough, it's the basis for India's draft privacy legislation. Um, it doesn't work. I, I mean, I think it has significant issues and it really challenges that, is it my data or your data? 
um, uh, concept in a right. in a profound way. Um, uh, as I said, Illinois has a very aggressive um, biometric identification privacy act, and uh, all of the action in um, class action litigation um, is taking place around the the biometric identifiers legislation in in Illinois. Bio- biometrics are interesting. Things like facial recognition. And other biometric stuff is something that I think will be the new freak out in, you know, 18 to 24 months um, where we currently see like the cookie freak out. Um, you know, we, we've talked, you know, we've done podcasts about cookies and we've been talking about um, fingerprinting. We've talked about mobile ad advertising identifiers as a consumer. It, it, do, do, should we be worried about one more than another or should we really be worried about the biometric stuff? Like, like where, like, yeah. like, like, what, 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 what should the fee? <laughs> what should I be afraid of? Um, okay, so this is we were talking about uh, the dirty truths. I mean, the question is that again, it's not the. I don't think it, it setting aside biometrics, which has, um, uh, which has uh, significant implications in other ways. Um, the question is, how is the data used? Is it used in a way that disadvantages you or not? That, to me, is really a question. Is it used in a way that people are making legal decisions about you or denying you benefits or something like that? Um, is it, I, I mean, I think things um, can feel creepy. I mean, cookies are a pretty benign uh, technology in the sense that it's easy for consumers to know if they're there. It's easy for consumers to stop them. Some of the fingerprinting um, is is much less controllable by consumers. On the other hand, you know, it depends on such a string of probabilistic connections that um, its usefulness uh, is is probably much less. Um, it's probably much less useful than than cookies. Um, in fact, I'm I, I'm sure that has to be the truth. But it, but it's much less transparent, and it's much less uh, controllable um, for for consumers. So you're trading off sort of uh, you know I, I'm going to make a bunch of guesses about you based on what I think about the way you're. Uh, your mobile device is set up, and I just was running. Um, EFF has a a, 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 a t- an app that will tell you basically how unique your fingerprint is. Um, you know, all iPhones look the same. Uh, yeah, we actually were just talking about that in the previous podcast or previous episode about the what was the name of that URL, Steve? Oh, what, what, what was it? Am, am I unique? Am I unique? Dot yeah. org. Um, what's FFE? EFF, the EFF stands for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. It's a digital privacy nonprofit. Okay. And civil liberties in, yeah. in general. So the the um, tool that I was talking about is Panopticlick, P-A-N-O-P-T-I-C-L-I-C-K, Panopticlick. That's the EFF tool. Um, and it, if you go to it on, on any device or browser, it'll tell you basically um, how unique your uh, your your device is. And my iPhone is, you know, 
uh, unique. One in 8,000 iPhones has this exact same um, signature as mine. That is a lot of people with the exact same signature as me. If you were to, if you were to rank the United States on you know compared to other countries who have enacted you know similar privacy laws, how, how would you say United States fares compared to let's say t- to Europe, right? Who kind of who seem to be taking the first step uh, and a larger step to implement that across the the EU? I think you have to start from a different premise, which is there are very, very, very different traditions in Europe and the United States about ownership of personal information. You know, it is mm-hmm. uh, if I'm a business and I have a bunch of CRM, uh, you know, customer data, is that my information or is that the, you know, in the individual's information? Who owns that? In the United States, things are converging. Um, but for the longest time, there was a real clear uh, distinction um, about that. And um, so I think, you know, we have, we are coming closer together, but for a long time, the distinctions about personal privacy and ownership of personal information was pretty different. The United States has some very, you know, it has uh, robust laws about uh, privacy in kind of sector-specific areas, uh, data protection with respect to health data, with respect to financial data, um, with respect to uh, information collected from children, as I said, um, uh, uh, with respect to uh, credit-related data. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Federal Trade Commission um, uh, Act has been a pretty effective um, uh, mechanism for getting more transparency into the system. The United States has a, a richer tradition in using data um, and creating value uh, through the use of data and in ways that are very important and have been very important to consumers. I mean, the United States has traditionally had the um, most affordable, cheapest credit uh, in the world because of the availability of data that allows for um, risk, cal- the allocation of, of credit um, and the allocation of costs that. associated with credit on the on the basis of risk. That's very um, interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, I mean, that's a very important, the, the use of data for good is a, you know, that's a tradition in the United States um, that has has been there and and it was coupled early on with very strict regulations about um, the use of that information in ways so that you're not discriminating against people and that you're not uh, using information in a way that harms them. So, um, it, so the United States uh, had has right now uh, every state and every territory has a data breach notification law and has for years. Um, GDPR, the the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe brought that in. But prior to that, there wasn't really a breach notification law. So there are good things and bad, you know, there there are sort of differences, um, uh, but there's not a, uh, you know, particularly sort of way to compare the approaches in a sort of apples to oranges approach. I mean, if you think about it, and I think this is Everything about privacy is about balancing, um, and this is, I'm going to say this in a very European way, it's about balancing the 
interests, the privacy interests of the individual and the legitimate interests of third parties in using that data. And you acknowledge mm -hmm. that there are private, the individual has privacy rights and interests and that third parties do. Where you draw the balance in any particular context um, may change and it may change as a result of cultural differences. Yeah. How much yeah. of it is impacted by who's kind of at the helm, who's at the wheel, right? From a, from a, from a, a, um, a party standpoint, right? So Trump being at the wheel versus an Obama being at the wheel, does, does, does that have an effect or do you think this takes so long? It's kind of not necessarily connected to any one, um, leader. Well, I mean, I, I think we had a very good example of uh, one dis one way in which um, that the, the who's in charge mm -hmm. um, can change things. At the end of the Obama administration, there was a the FCC promulgated a broadband uh, ISP privacy rule, and it was a um, it was a pretty uh, aggressive. Um, in some ways, uh, you know, difficult, but um, it was a very aggressive privacy uh, rule. When um, the first thing that happened when the new administration came in is that got rolled back and then it got completely rolled back when net neutrality went out the window because um, of the reclassification of broadband uh, as not a oh, common oh, Net neutrality. Uh, I didn't think service. we were going to get in there today, but... Yeah. Right. So, you know, once it was once that wasn't a title to service. Now, um, the one thing that has happened with that, of course, is that the FCC and the Federal Trade Commission have since come together. They've entered into a memorandum of understanding because this is now back in the FTC's uh, wheelhouse. Um, and the FTC is doing a industry wide study about broadband ISP privacy practices. Um, and, and it does make sense. I mean, I, from my perspective, it does make sense. Uh, we don't have, you know, one privacy regime for one kind of, uh, technology and another, uh, privacy regime for another technology. It makes more sense to have the FTC in my view, um, uh, doing both of those things, but, um, it did have an immediate effect of rolling that privacy rule right off the table. Um, uh, but it's not gone forever. As a consumer, like as an average consumer, um, how does a consumer keep track and you know protect the usage of their personal information when a large percentage of the time, because of the way it's been defined, they don't even necessarily know what that personal information is? Like how? I mean, you know, I have a social security number. I know what that is. If that gets stolen, I mean, I guess I could figure that out. But my cookie address or my, my cookie or my IP address or my mobile app advertising identifier, I don't even know what those things are. How, how does someone be responsible for that? So that is why this is very difficult. And that is probably why at some level, we need some baseline principles, um, because I think it's probably unrealistic to ask consumers to understand the technology and how it works at 
in all of these services. And so the, the notion has always been, and I'm going to tie this back to the Federal Trade Commission Act and the notion that you have to tell people um, what they need to know to make a decision about it. Um, the, the notion should be, you know, as we educate people about how um, data is being collected and what those technologies are, you have to, they come to expect those uses and understand those uses. And, um, but, but when you're doing things that are surprising um, uh, or, or, you know, would be startling to a consumer, you need to sort of be more in their face about it. That's very hard to do. This technology is complicated. Um, nobody, uh, you know, sort of average consumer uh, not steeped in this industry um, doesn't recognize the, you know, millions of data points, uh, many of which are completely benign, but uh, uh, when they get associated with persistent identifiers, you know, can be used uh, for good and for not so good. Um, and so I, you can't expect that people will understand, you know, will spend the time to read every single privacy policy that's out there. So some of this is going on, some of the privacy protection is going on in the form of, you know, browser manufacturers and device manufacturers and, you know, taking increasing steps to um, respond to advances in data collection technology. Um, some of it is uh, in the form of, so uh, the California Consumer Privacy Act is a, a, a good example. Um, you know, any consumer can go to a company and say, tell me everything that you know about me. Um, I think that makes a company uh, that is collecting data think about what they want to be, what, what they want their response to be in that situation. Um, what are the things that you're going to feel comfortable telling people you know about them? You know, thinking about that, are there things, Becky, that you are doing to protect yourself um, that that consumers, I mean, what what do you do to protect yourself? Like, I mean, I'm leaving my phone at home if I leave the house now. I'm turning Bluetooth off because I'm crazy. Um, what, what, what do you do? Well, um, you know, I spend a lot of my time um, deliberately exposing myself be, to these things to understand how they work. So I turn cookies on and off and I opt in and I opt out and I yeah. uh, turn, you know, mobile notifications on and off just because I want to see. So I'm probably not a really good, um, a really good consumer. The other thing is like, I'm not doing anything really interesting. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm taking walks around my extremely rural neighborhood these right. days. So if they want to track me walking around Rappahannock County. I did the same thing. I have nothing, I have nothing to hide. I think you know, I have two email addresses. So like I, I make a, a strong point that I don't really care. It hasn't impacted me yet. I haven't had my, my identity stolen. Um, I think maybe after starting this podcast, I'm becoming more of a target. Maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. You haven't had your identity or your, you haven't had your identity stolen in a way that comes back to bite you. I mean, no, yeah. I've had my credit card number stolen, but I, I, I have, I have a guy who uses my email address. That's kind of interesting. Really? What do you um, mean? Really? Well, so there's another, there's another gentleman who has the same name as me. Um, and he often uses uh, a Gmail account that I that is mine uh, as his email address. 
Um, oh, so you get all of the confirmations and crap that he doesn't want? Yeah, it's mostly crap. It's mostly crap. He, <laughs> he, he doesn't. Um, he, he is, so I, I got like a dating profiles. That was interesting. Um, you know, uh, some ordered some sandwiches. I got the receipts for that. Um, for a while, I was getting his mobile phone bill. So at one point, I actually called the guy and asked him, you know, I'm getting your email. I just got congratulations on your new mobile phone. Um, <laughs> why am I getting your email? <laughs> um, so, so I, I guess because I have a more common name than you guys have, which I, I don't think it's that common a name, but whatever. Um, my I actually, there is somebody who has an email uh, who has the same name as me and an, a Gmail account that's very similar. And every once in a while, I get her mail. I'm like, yeah, it's not for me. <laughs> He actually thought that his email address and my email just were the same, and I, I, I was, I was worried that somehow that he had, like had gotten my password and was getting in to my email. And he was, I, I don't, I don't think so. I think he, uh, I, I think he just never checks his email. Doesn't know what his email address is. Crazy. I, I just, I am much more concerned about that, about identity theft, about you know getting accounts hacked and that kind of stuff. So, you know, when I think about what to do, it's the, you know, strong passwords, uh, password vaults, that kind of stuff, not, you know, not doing the thing that I want to do, which is use the same password for everything. So I remember it, um, you know, those, those kinds of, uh, uh things. Cause, because the identity theft really is a pain in the neck, uh, getting out from under um, a real serious identity at, uh, theft attack is, is takes bad. years. Takes years. Yeah. No, for sure. Do you ever Google your, yourself, Becky? Um, I don't often Google myself. Okay. I did learn that it is a very common thing to do. You know how I learned that to remember. I, I don't know if you remember this, but in, 2005 i happen to know august 1st 2005 when um that wonderful list of uh three consecutive months of 680,000 aol uh users um email went uh was posted on the internet for a, a big data experiment um it, it Turned out that, I mean, it was done with the best of, uh, of scientific uh, intentions, but it was a, a complete disaster. It turns out that people do Google themselves all the time. What was the experiment? What was, what was the AOL email address experiment? So, um, you know, it, people were trying to make search engines and search algorithms better. And the way that you do that is by understanding how people search for things. Um, and the way you understand how people search for things is by, you know, using a big data set. AOL was interested in understanding searches better to improve the service. Uh, it essentially put literally three consecutive months of searches, more than half a million AOL users up on a, on a website um, for researchers to access uh, and it removed all of the account names and and uh, all of that stuff. 
Um, but the question was, and this is how people started thinking about, you know, what do you, what is really personally identifiable and what is not? The, the question was, are the, does, is the content of your searches personal information? Well, it does if you search for yourself, I guess. That's true. <laughs> that was the theory. Well, I, I remember a couple of years ago, the New York City did that um, thing where they dumped all the cab location data um, and, uh, and and a bunch of people did studies about how you could use data like that, um, even though it had been anonymized uh, and de-anonymize it with other data. Uh, I, I remember there was a there was a blog post where they they figured out that they looked for famous uh, famous people getting into cabs pictures of them and then figured out what cabs they were in and then tracked where they went. Those data sets, of course, are fabulously valuable for good for good purposes, right? You know, you can use that information for a lot of really great things, yes. but you can also use it for creepy things. I want to just see, see if you had anything specific you wanted to say or anything that you wanted to address as far as um, consumer privacy is considered. Again, we don't really know what our listenership is made of. Um, it's most likely our friends and family at this point and yes, people that we yes. work with. Are there things that people should be doing? Are there places that people should be going? Are there people that that, that the people should be talking to um, to better educate themselves around consumer privacy or better even protect themselves um, as far as them on the internet? Well, I think, you know, there are lots of uh, ways where you can limit um, uh, tracking if you uh, are interested in, in doing that. I mean, the question is, what do you want to protect yourself from? Uh, what you can do and should do is look really carefully at what your Facebook settings are um, and what your LinkedIn settings are, um, because that's real information about you. That's not somebody guessing. Um, that's, you know, if you're, if your settings are public, um, that's a lot of information about you and your friends. That's real solid information that not somebody's inference. Um, if you care about people, uh, inferring things about you, there are lots of things that you, uh, can do to, um, limit cookies to, you know, set a do not, uh, track uh, flag on your, um, uh, your mobile, uh, device. Um, uh, uh, all of those tools are out there. You sort of have to decide how, uh, you know, what worries you and what concerns you now. I mean, you know, Steve's not going to take his phone out because he doesn't want to be tracked when he's walking around his neighborhood in San Francisco. I don't know, but he might get to the point where he wants to know if he's walked by somebody who's coughed on him with COVID, um, and then, you know, and then the world could change. I think that this, uh, we're in a very interesting um, time uh, where the need and value of big data in terms of addressing the COVID is quite clear um, and where the privacy implications of that are quite clear. And it's a interesting and fabulously uh, uh, engaging um, intersection of those two uh, values. And, um, you know, I, there, there have been um, huge complaints coming out of Europe and the United States. I'm going to put that aside and put it, take it with a grain of salt because it's hard to know exactly. But from, from the scientific community, um, there have been an enormous number of complaints about 
how GDPR has made access to data for the research by the research community very difficult. Um, the uh, the um, tracking, whatever it's being called now, um, I think will be um, completely voluntary. But of course, completely voluntary, um, the data is going to exist. And that always means that law enforcement can get its hands right. on it. And that yeah. has different implications. Um, so how we balance out the privacy and the safety and the civil liberties piece of this are really, um, I think we could see some very interesting uh, uh, collisions here that really cause people to think hard about um, how these values need to be played out. And then of course, you know, if it's in a crisis, people might make the wrong decisions. You know, they might, it's, it's hard to think clearly in a crisis, so. This was awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye, guys. Take care. If you have a question, a comment, or a suggestion for a future episode, drop us a line. Steve and I would love to hear from you. There's two ways to do that. You can email us at contact at youronmute.com or leave a voicemail at 406-748-MUTE. That's 406 708 6883. We'd love to hear from you.